All right, remember what we're doing here in this time. This is a, a sacred time. Feel the heart of God moving towards you. Uh, he wants your joy. He wants your holiness. He's given you means of grace that will enable his grace to just explode in your soul. One of those means of his grace is the preaching of the word. So when you sit and listen today, this is not a passive religious exercise. This is an active pursuit of truth and grace. Be listening for the words of scripture in particular. My job is to frame things in such a way that the words of the Bible will come alive to you this morning. Uh, we're preaching through something called a field guide of what it means for us to be the church together. What we're doing is allowing the words that are in your Bible in the 20th chapter of the book of Acts, where church planter, apostle, pastor Paul is giving a speech recapping what it looked like for them to plant this great church in this city of Ephesus. And what we are saying is the way that they rolled, can we roll that way too? How did they do their thing? And the Spirit is doing the same thing in our day for the glory of Jesus, us too. So we're working slowly through big ideas in those 15 or 16 verses in your Bible. Today we're just looking at one verse, verse 21 of Acts chapter 20, and we're thinking on this question. How is a church called to relate to outsiders? How is a church called to relate to outsiders? Uh, this is actually a question that every community ever needs to answer for itself. Every country has to think about this. We're having those fights right now in the United States of America, right? How do we think about building a wall? How do we think about immigration? How do we think about outsiders moving in to our community? Every family home has to think about this. Every condo association has to think about this. Every golf club has to think about this. Every community that you could name has to think about those of us who are in how are we disposed to those of us who are not in? And when you hear the word outsiders today, just think broadly, generally, of the average regular Bostonian on the street, on your block, at your job, in your school. Anyone who would say, you know what, I, I haven't believed the gospel, I'm not religious, I don't follow Jesus, I've not been baptized into the family of God. Baptism is that tattoo or that badge, or that uniform that you wear when you say, because of the grace of Jesus, I've been swept into this community of Jesus. We're thinking today about the average person who would say, yeah, that's not me. Um, remember where we are, that's the majority of people who are outside the walls of this church. Think of it like this. If you did a pie chart of the cities that we have been sent to, and you said blue are going to be the outsiders to Christian community or gospel grace, and brown are going to be all the insiders, that pie chart would look like an ocean with the skinniest little rowboat that you've ever seen on that ocean. That's the context that you have been sent to. 
I could run down everyone on my block, you could run down everyone on your block or in your condo, and you would say, wow, I am mostly hanging with running into folks who would say, I don't want to, or I'm not a part of this Jesus church community thing. Can you see, therefore, how this becomes a crucial question for a church in the time and space that we live to be answering and thinking about. Absolutely crucial. All right, so we're going to think about this today. First thing I'm going to do is talk you through some potential dispositions toward outsiders that a church community could have. As I run through these, be thinking, which of these comes naturally to you? Which of these, it may be more than one, would you say, that's where my heart, that's where my hands would naturally run to when I think people outside of Christian community? Okay, so for example, here's one, ignore. I just ignore anybody who's not a part of my church community. Move past them, not even on your radar. One of my great skills is coming home on Friday afternoons when it's trash day on our block and literally walking right past the empty trash cans that are strewn on the steps up to my house. Does anyone else have that skill? This drives Grace crazy because she swears that I do this on purpose, that I get out of my car and I make the strategic calculated decision that I am not going to invest the 90 seconds that it would take to put the trash cans away. She swears I have that evil going on in my heart. But I try to tell her that that's not what's happening at all. I literally just don't even see the cans on the ground. I am occupied with getting up into my house, getting into some more comfortable clothes, doing my 30 minutes of jump shooting in the backyard, and then hopefully sitting down and reading a book. That's all that's on my mind. I don't even see empty trash cans and recycling cans. This is how Jesus' church lives sometimes, in a city, doing its own thing, oblivious to outsiders existing at all. Every single contact on my iPhone is someone who is a Christian or in my church. Every calendar item that I have is either with Christians or with people in my church. I don't even really know the names of, the stories of. I don't even see them there. This is all that I see. Is that your basic posture? Avoid. Here's another one. It's related. Uh, ignore is that one. Here's another one. It's related, but not the same. How about avoid? Move away from. Okay, think of this one. This is not so much, hey, I'm so occupied with what's going on in here that I didn't even see you there. This is, oh, I see you there, and I am moving away from you. Does anybody else in this room hate traffic lights? traffic lights. I may have inherited that hatred. I've lived north of Boston for 35 years or so. I had become a ninja at avoiding traffic lights. 
I can get from my house to almost anywhere within two or three miles of my house without hitting a traffic light. I can do that. My day job is in Revere. I live right at the bottom of Melrose. I have to go through Malden and Everett to get to work. If you Google map that, it would tell you 16 minutes or so is the appropriate time to give yourself. I can do that drive in 10 minutes. Now, my route includes two parking lots, one guy's driveway. He doesn't know about this because he's not home at the time that I go through. Several right turns on red and um, a gas station cut through. But I can get there in the minimal amount of lights. You know how Google gives you the option to say, I need to take a route that has no tolls? I've thought very seriously about going on Shark Tank with a, an app just for Bostonians that says, can I do this route without any lights? Or what's the minimal number of lights that I will hit? Avoiding them all would be the dream. This is how Jesus' church lives sometimes. Outsiders are to be avoided at all costs. Now, all of these have some nuance, so we're not saying that there aren't some situations, some places, some parades, some celebrations that you would say, I'm going to be invited into sinning or celebrating sin, and I, I do need to abstain from that. What we are saying is that those places and spots, those are the exceptions to the rule of how we're supposed to live. The rule is to live Lives that are fully engaged in the ebb and flow of the place that we've been sent to with the people that we have been sent to. And sometimes churches take a different approach and they say, if you don't put the adjective Christian before it, I'm not going. So it's got to be Christian softball and Christian rap concert and a Christian scarf swap. Have you heard of those? And a Christian bookstore and Christian kickboxing because I need to avoid contact with outsiders. You tell me you're a Christian, then we can hang out. If not, how about you get off my lawn and I promise I won't get on yours. Is that you or is that how you have been discipled? All right, next one, opposite approach. We talked about this one in gospel community this week. Sometimes the church says, here's what we need to do, is blend. April 1994, Boots and Diamonds, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Does anyone know what that is? Good, I love you for not knowing. Boots and Diamonds is a line dancing thing. Somehow, my senior year of college, one of my buddies got me to go to this Boots and Diamonds place. Every male in this room was wearing super tight Wrangler jeans, a button-down shirt, but tucked in, and it had these things. I don't know. You pull them. It looked like light switches to me, but boots with spurs and these hat things. Believe it or not, 20-plus years ago, guess what I was wearing? <laughs> Baggy jeans and an untucked shirt and a pair of Air Jordans, and I might have had a Celtics hat on. I walked into this place for about three minutes, and I was like, I am out of here. I'm walking back to campus. I did not blend. 
at all. Now, pretend with me that I ran to Drysdale's. Does anyone know what that is? I love you for that too. Drysdale's is a place where you could buy country, western, Texan gear, okay? And spent like 300 bucks, and I just went all Wranglers and boots and a shirt with the, with the light switch on it. And I came back to the club and jumped in the middle. I know that would never happen, but pretend. I would blend right in. You would not be able to pick the kid from Boston out of the crowd. That sometimes is what Christians and churches do. Hey, if we just look and behave like everybody else, they'll like us, they'll accept us, they'll approve of us, we'll just blend. Now there's nuance here. I'm not talking about fitting on your block so that you don't look like a weirdo so that people can know this guy's like me. That's submissional behavior. I'm saying betraying your gospel identity so that you might fit in with everyone else. This is what 90% of churches in greater Boston have done in the last generation. Compromised one by one, Christian doctrine after Christian doctrine after Christian doctrine that would set them apart from outsiders so that we might be viewed favorably by the world so that we would blend. When that happens, no one even knows that the church is there anymore because it's just blending. And eventually, the, the churches disappear altogether. Is that your approach? This is the easiest one. You put your life side by side with your neighbors, coworkers, and classmates. Is it basically the same exact life? Same exact priorities? Same exact spending patterns? Same exact language? Same exact television shows. All of it is basically the same, except I go to this church here and there and I know some people. Is, is that our approach? Let's just blend and fit. It's easier that way. We won't have to answer any questions about our lives or about Jesus. Let's blend. Here's another one. Demonize or villainize. We're going to move against anyone who's not a part of this community. Again, nuance. There are villains. Uh, there are wolves. We're going to preach on them from this text in February. People who would publicly and formally set themselves against the grace of God and the good of his people. And we are called to oppose them. We'll get into what that looks like. But again, exception to the rule. Sometimes. We take that view and we apply it to everyone who's not a part of the life of a Jesus community. We heard this happen all the time in the campaign, the presidential campaigns that just happened, right? See how that worked? Do you remember candidate Clinton's deplorables comment? Remember that one? She looked out at 60 million Americans and said they are all a basket of deplorables, all of them. What had she done? She villainized anyone who was outside of her way of thinking about life and how the country should be run. It was probably before that or right after that, candidate Trump 
did the same exact thing. I will not repeat the words, but you remember the words that he used about all Mexicans? Remember that? Painting a brush of millions of people and villainizing all of them at once. Anyone who is outside, here's our disposition. Let's give them a label because they're villains, all of them. Uh, several years ago when we were thinking about where Matt would go to high school, a bunch of kids in Melrose were getting ready to go to Bishop Fenwick High School. The basketball coach was recruiting all the good basketball players in the city who were in eighth grade. And somebody said to me, hey, are you thinking about sending Matt up to Fenwick? You should have seen my face when they asked this question. I was like, never. I don't care if they give him a full scholarship and pick him up every day in a limo. A Cruz child is never going to Bishop Fenwick High School. Why? As a Dom Savio kid, we were taught that anyone who coached, attended, lived near, dated someone from Bishop Fenwick was a demon, basically. Was a villain. All of them. Every single one of them. We villainized that entire community. What's interesting is now I've got friends who went to Fenwick. And I'm like, wow, that was the wrong disposition to the entire community. Maybe Casey Arena on the basketball team, but everyone? No. Human beings are great at this. We're great at this right here. If you are inside with us, our race, our culture, our sex, our worldview, then you're good. If you are Outside of us, we are out to end you. To end you. Is that you? Do you find the default trigger of your heart to anyone who does not confess Christ to be, I want the worst for them? All right, one more. Proselytize. Uh, that word can be used in good ways. But I mean this more like the word commoditize. Um, I mean by this to say the narrowest sense of taking a transactional posture toward outsiders. Moving toward others, but only transactionally. Living like there is only one thing that an outsider is good for. And that is that they may become a convert and become a member of our church. We don't see them as living, breathing image-bearing, valuable people, but we view them exclusively about their potential to add to the numbers of our church. Every year for the last six years now, I've coached rec basketball down at the Melrose Middle School. I've been able to love not only my sons and daughters, but over 100 kids and their families in this specific city. One of the moms was a local real estate agent. You know where I'm going with this? It felt to me like the only reason that I existed in this mom's eyeballs was for what potential? That she might be able to list my house or list a friend of mine's house or get me to buy a house through her. That was the entire nature of our relationship. 
as far as she was concerned, I was alive because I was a potential real estate client of hers. That is how Jesus' church sometimes positions herself. I'll have contact with you, outsider, but we pretty fast better be talking about the four spiritual laws, and you pretty fast better be coming to a church service with me because I have a belt and it needs some notches, and you may be one of them. Is that how you have been taught primarily to relate to outsiders? Or have you ever met the Christian who that's the only way that they see the world? It's not fun. It's never fun to be the person who is a project and and not just an image bearer of God. We could run through several others. You may have others in mind. I would love to hear them. That's my list of potential postures. Then we come to the text of Scripture. We come to the story of the gospel and the mission of God, and we see something very different going on, and it is this. Jesus' people, insiders to the grace of the gospel, we move toward outsiders in grace, and truth, with love. Our hearts, our hands, we want to love and bless and serve and gospel those who are outside of saving grace right now. That this needs to be our default posture we could find on any page of Scripture. Today we're just going to see it in one verse of Scripture from Paul's speech. Here's the big verse. He's describing how the church lived in a city of pagans and unbelieving Jewish people. And here's what he says. We were very busy testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how we were disposed to the city we were in. We were testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance and of faith in Jesus. All right, a few things I want you to take from this text, truths that intersect with our question this morning. Here's the first one. This is huge. Don't miss this. Outsiders were on their radar. Outsiders were on their radar. One of the things that they gave their time, prayer, energy, money, effort, calendar to, was people who were not yet a part of the family of God. One of the fun things that we get used to do in our members' classes when we would have 15, 20 people stepping in at the same time is we would do a little session on ecclesiology or a polity, which are the big words for, hey, how is a church run? And we'd break up into groups of five and we'd give them a marker and a giant sheet of paper and we'd say, hey, you write down for us how a church is to be led and governed. You do it. And then we'll come back together, we'll put these posters on the wall and we'll talk about this together. Inevitably, people would take this thing and they would end up basically in one of two structures. One of them had, this is New England, right? The congregation at the top 
and then the pastors and the leaders at the bottom. This is how the church should be structured. We the people are at the top. The pastors and the elders serve the people but are under the authority of the people. That's polity. Then we'd inevitably get some other poster boards that were different in different ways. Had some Roman Catholics coming into the life of a gospel-centered Protestant church, and so they were like, isn't it a pope? And then cardinals, and then bishops, and then people, and then others would have the chart where it would say, well, it's, it's the elders of the church who are leading the people. Inevitably, it would be a hierarchy one way or another. And the first thing we would do every time is we would say, okay, there's a couple of things missing from this organizational chart. Number one, where is Jesus? And then everybody would be embarrassed and they would be sheepish and they would say, oh, oh no, we assume Jesus, of course. And then they would take their big pen and they would write Jesus on there. So we would establish, hey, this is, this is Jesus' church. He is the chief shepherd. He is the, the final authority. Uh, the Trinity is leading this thing. And then we would say, but you're also missing someone else very important. Where's the mission? Where are the outsiders? Where are the people that we are sent to? We didn't even think to put them on the chart somewhere. So then we would do this exercise where we would turn it sideways and we would say, here's how Seven Mile Road is, is, is governed and led. Trinity births the church. Jesus is the chief shepherd. And he has elders and deacons who are giving their lives to lead the people on mission to, and then we would have the whole thing is pressing toward our neighbors, outsiders, people who have not yet believed or received the grace of Jesus. The church is one of the only institutions, maybe the only one that exists in a pronounced way for those who are not members yet, go to any condo association, go to any golf club, go to any PTO, and it's all about the people who are in it now. We exist for the glory of God and for the good of others on the mission of God. Think of it like this. Anybody ever flown on Southwest Airlines before? You know they mess with you. They don't give you a seat assignment. Brandon and I flew to Indianapolis on Southwest, and we didn't know that game. Guess where we sat? Where did we sit, Brad? <laughs> he was occupied watching the NBA on the little screen. We sat in the last row of the plane. Remember next to that guy that was talking the whole time? We were in the back of the plane like this. We didn't know the Southwest game. When Southwest came into existence, only 15% of the American public were actual flyers. Only 15% of Americans had ever flown and were intending to fly at all. They were the insiders to the flying industry. That's because it was so complicated and so expensive. And the average Joe on the street just figured, I can't fly, so I'll just drive or I'll take a bus. When Southwest got birth, the big idea for the life of this organization was, hey, uh, we're not going after the 15% of the population that already flies. That's not what we're doing. We are going after the 85% of the population who's never flown before. We're going to go cheap, 
fun and simple so that they can get inside this flying circle. If you would have said to them, hey, who's your competition? They would not have said American Airlines, Delta Airlines, and uh, United Airlines. They would have said, our competition is the bus and the train and the car. We're going for outsiders. You are now free to fly about the country. You heard that little pun phrase? You, meaning you who have not ever flown, we want you to come into the joys of flying. This is how I long for Seven Mile Road to think and to behave. This is the idea at the heart of our multiplication, right? Why would we take a big church and break it into a lot of little churches? Here's why. Line in the sand. We're not only going to exist for the sake of people who are predisposed to being in the life of a church. We're going to do that. We're going to see you thriving. We're going to see you be healthy. But we are also purposefully, intentionally, happily going for the blue of our pie chart. The 99% of folks in these cities who are not insiders yet to gospel grace. We're going to build churches. We're going to live lives where outsiders are on the radar. They're on the radar. And this text helps us to see that that's how Jesus' church has always functioned. We testified both to Jews and to Greeks. They were on the radar of our church. Outsiders were. All right, second thing. Any outsider can get in on gospel grace. All right, let this sink in because this will change your whole view of what it means to be the church together. Here's the gospel in a nutshell. We are all complete idiots. By birth, by choice, we sin. We know sin is death. We know it's a poison. We know it's a fraud, but we do it anyway. God does not look at us and is impressed with us, we're just, we're lost. But yet, our future and our present is incredibly bright because of the grace of Jesus. And because those two things are true, anyone can get in on this. Anybody can get on the inside of that organization. And that institution, anybody. Both Jews and Greeks, did you hear it in the text? Both Jews and Greeks would have been their way of saying, everybody, everybody, everybody in this city of Ephesus. Jews would have been that small tribe who were born into the covenant people of God. Greeks would have been the pagans or the Gentiles, everybody else. This text is saying to you that we testified with confidence and optimism to everybody. You can get in on the grace of Jesus. Clean people, not clean people, put together, not put together people, born into the people of God, not born into the people of God. Everybody is valuable. Everybody is broken. The force of this mission of God is to see all of them hear and believe Jesus. 
If anyone knew this, it was the people that, were, that he was speaking to this day. This is why we had Allison read these words to you. They're so beautiful and they're so clear on this point. He wrote to these people and he said to them, don't forget that at one time you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of God's people. You were strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Did you hear it four times in there? What's the big idea? You were outsiders. Four times he says it. Strangers, separated, without God, alienated. You were outsiders. And then what Allison read to us was, but in Christ Jesus, those who were far off have been brought near, and then the kicker, by the blood of Jesus. In other words, how does anybody move from being an outsider to being an insider? It's purely by grace. That is always the way that it is with Jesus' community, and that's the way it needs to be right here. No one in here deserves to be in here. Nobody. It's not even close. Nobody climbed the ladder and rang the bell at the top. Nobody passed the exam to become an insider. Jesus swept in and saved us. That is all that happened here. That's it. And if that happened for me, and that happened for you, when we know that we were outsiders, it can happen for anybody. Do you understand that there's no community like that on earth? None but the church of Jesus Christ. If I really wanted to play on the Celtics, and I strapped on some of those fancy new socks that they sell for $12 each, $12 for a pair of socks, and I went and knocked on the door down at the garden or the practice facility in Waltham, and I said, hey, I want to get in on the Celtics thing. I want to be on this team. I'll take number 46. That one has not been retired yet. What would they say to me? Lori's laughing at me. That's, they would just laugh. They would say, no, I'm sorry, sir. You can't get in on this community. You're just not skilled enough. We've seen your jump shot. Forget about it. And you're 43. You can't jump anymore. You're going to remain an outsider. How about if I wanted to go to Harvard Business School? I tried this. I got the letter. I still have it. It was the, sorry, not smart enough, not ambitious enough. You don't fit. You cannot become an insider on this community. How about if I wanted to be a model for Armani? Is that a clothes thing? Is it Armani? Clothes. Suits, right? Okay. What if I went to like Italy or wherever it is and I said, hey, here I am. I'd like to model on the American side of things. What would they say to me? Come on, you can laugh again, Lori. <laughs> they would say, listen, man, when you were 19, maybe you had some potential, but forget about it. You got the scar on your head and your ro rosacea acne, and you're not as thin as you once were, and yeah, we're not doing the whole North of Bostonian thing. I'm sorry, sir, you can't get inside on this modeling community. What about the church? of Jesus Christ. All outsiders, what's the disposition? Come and welcome to Jesus. Come and welcome to Jesus. 
Both sexes, male and female, are welcome. All races and all pigmentation, you're all welcome. All intellects, degree, no degree, you're all welcome. All body types, bring it. Tall and fast, chunky and slow, totally welcome to become an insider. You got money, you're broke, none of these things matter. There's just one qualification. You're a sinner who's ready to be done with your sin and fly to Jesus. And everyone is potential for that. Both Jews and Greeks and all Bostonians can get in on this. Do you look at everyone like that? Do you see people on the orange line like that? Do you see your neighbors like that? Hey, there's an outsider who could totally become an insider because this thing is just about grace. We are called not to avoid or ignore or vilify or demonize or blend or commoditize, but to believe for and move toward and love people. So here's how we say it here. We're called to love outsiders and point them to Jesus. Here's our big win in the life of this church. If these cities over the next 20 years would be able to say, hey, I knew some people at this seven-mile road deal, and here's what they did. They loved me, and they kept hyping Jesus to me. They loved me, and they kept hyping Jesus to me. Right? That does not happen because one pastor leads the charge. It happens because you get excited about the mission of God. So I'm going to lead us in some guided prayer. Put a statement before you. I want you to think about your own soul. I want you to repent and believe and ask Jesus for grace in these five dispositions that we talked about, and keep asking the Lord to move you toward love. Let's pray together. First, if you find your tendency is to ignore and to just move right past outsiders, would you take that to the Lord right now and ask him to move that out of your heart and change you? Second, if your tendency is to avoid to walk to the other side of the street, say, get off my lawn, you're not a Christian. Would you ask the Spirit to just strip that from you permanently today? Third, if you would honestly say, here's what I do, I blend. I just, I don't want to have to answer for Jesus or be different. Would you ask the Spirit to give you boldness and confidence to trust Christ with your life? Fourth, if you know the tendency of your heart is to demonize and villainize everybody out there, would you take that to Jesus and ask him to break you of that?
And then last, if your tendency is to commoditize image bearers of God and not want to bless and serve them, but just only convert them, would you ask Jesus to give you a bigger view, a bigger, more holistic view for what it means to love your neighbor? Father, we confess that we're not great at this, but I pray that you'd start now to change our hearts, that we might actually be a church that legitimately moves toward others in gospel love. Thanks for these words of scripture that make this plain to us.